Let's open our Bible tonight. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 9. We're enjoying step-by-step walk through this wonderful book, and we're learning a lot about how life in Christ is so much better than what the people had under the old covenant. Tonight, I would like to teach about the eternal sacrifice of Christ. And so I will begin reading chapter 9, verse 1, and I will read unto verse 6, and then we'll pray. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But let's also look at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we're teaching on the eternal sacrifice of Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to fellowship. There are so many places all of us could be on a Tuesday evening, but to be here and to study your word, to listen to what it has to say to us about our Savior, that really does make us happy. So give us ears to hear. Help me to teach clearly and simply and directly. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. This is a chapter about contrast. That's what we have here. In this chapter, we, we deal with the earthly tabernacle and then the heavenly sanctuary. We deal with the repeated sacrifices of the earthly priests and also with the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is a chapter that also speaks to us about priests who die. Scripture says it's appointed unto men once to die, but yet we have an eternal priest by the name of Jesus, whoever liveth to make intercession for us. So there are a lot of contrasts in this chapter. We have studied these other comparisons between Jesus and other figures in the Bible, and we looked at how the covenant and the ministry that Jesus had as the true high priest is significant, and we saw that in chapter 8. Chapter 9 then goes a little bit further in helping us to see that the tabernacle itself has many parallels or typologies of the ministry of our Savior Jesus. When we think of a tabernacle, we want to be reminded of the Old Testament tent, and the tent had an outer court around it. The tent had two rooms. There was a curtain in the tent, so that divided the tent into two rooms. And if you've ever seen a picture of the outer court of the tabernacle, you know that the way it was structured, 
there was only one entrance. You had to come in from the east, one entrance. And that certainly signified what Jesus says in the Gospel of John about him being the way, the truth, and the life. Because amongst the Jews, the entrance was called the way. And then, of course, that first tent in, Jew, in the Jewish Talmud, they likened that to the truth. And then the holiest of all, the holy of holies, they called that the life. Because that the innermost holy sanctuary where God dwells above the Ark of the Covenant. So the first piece of furniture you would run into, though it's not mentioned here, would have been the, that, that brazen altar where they offered up animal sacrifices. And the blood that was caught from that sacrifice is going to be used later when the priest has to do other ministries, especially if it's going to take him inside of that tent. Well, the, the brazen altar, of course, represents Calvary. We think of the cross because that's where everything begins. The sacrifice of Jesus, it took place in such a way that the blessing that has come to us uh, allows our old nature to be dealt with or crucified so that in the, 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 the fire of the wrath of God's judgment that came upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that is symbolized in the fire that consumed the sacrifice. That sacrifice suffered the penalty that should have came to every Israelite because of their sins. And Jesus became the Lamb of God that took, took away the sins of the world. Now, if you look here at verse, verse number one, it speaks about the first covenant. That certainly is talking about what we consider as the Old Testament. And it speaks about the ordinances, or we can also say regulations. And it was a worldly sanctuary only in the sense that it was something made by human hands. And it mirrored something that was spiritual. Verse 2 then speaks of what is inside of that tent. I'm not going to go through all the pieces of the furniture with you. I've done that on other occasions before. But the candlestick, I mean, the candlestick had uh, seven branches is what they call it. They used the word candelabrum. And there was a single pole or stem that came up and it just went out like this and out like that, and it looked like branches. So you had, at the end of each of those, you had a place with a bowl on it, on top of it, and you had some oil, and then you had a free-floating wick. So once you lit it, it just continued to burn. And the oil was fed from a place inside, or I should say external to the candlestick, so the priest could come and he could pour something in, and that would continue to make sure that the uh, lamp would never go out. Now, we understand that Jesus makes the statement, I am the light of the world, okay? I am the light of the world. So we understand the illumination that, that he brings. Once you move beyond the candlestick, you would also see that there was a table right uh, uh, there on the other side. That there was a table, and that table always had fresh bread on it. And that's what the priests ate. In the Hebrew, that bread was called the bread of his face or the bread of his presence, that showbread was there, and, and this was what the priests were allowed to devour in fellowship. Now, let's not forget, Jesus is the one who said, I am that bread come down from heaven. See? I am that bread come down from heaven. So all of these have some kind of figurative example of who Christ is. Verse 3, when you go through the, that veil, the second veil, into the holiest place, you can see what's there in verse 4, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this was... 
very important to Israel because God told Moses <clears throat> after they built the tabernacle, you put that ark in there and inside the ark, it's going to hold some witnesses or testimonies of my power. So there's going to be the Ten Commandments. And we understand the Ten Commandments from Exodus uh, 20. And then inside there, there's also going to be a pot of gold that's uh, going, going to hold the manna. Now, you remember the manna. The Lord sent the manna to them for 40 years, six days a week. And the children of Israel's problem was they were murmuring because they were hungry. And, and in this hunger, God rained down manna every single day. I, I consider this one of the great miracles of Scripture because it's one of the few script, uh, miracles in the Bible that consistently happened for four decades. So that the children of Israel had nothing to do but step out of their tent every day and gather in what God had brought to them from heaven, essentially. And they could feed their families with that. And this God gave them, despite the fact that over and again they wanted to kill Moses. They murmured against God. They had all kind of other problems. And it shows you God's grace in blessing us and doing stuff for us, even when we don't deserve the blessing. But he continues to bring the blessings to us, even when we murmur and complain. Now, I know the scripture says do all things without murmuring. However, I mean, if God was giving out awards for the best murmurer and the best complainer, I'm sure I could get right up there at the front of the line with the best of you in here tonight. Yeah, it, it, no doubt about it. So that, that pot then was a reminder of God's miracle. And then the, the rod that budded, Aaron was Moses' brother, but Aaron, he, he attracted a lot of attention because of how he dressed. And, and his, his attire that God designed for him, some people might call it a little bit flamboyant, but it certainly made him stand out as well as his sons. And the people got angry and they said, what in the world makes you think that you and Aaron are special and God's got some great work for Aaron to do? We can do the same thing that Aaron can do, but they couldn't because God chose Aaron. In the end, the Lord told Moses, go get a branch, make sure there's nothing on there. And you take that branch and you put it in the Holy of Holies. And you, you, you take the branches from the other tribes and you put them in the Holy of Holies, and the one that I cause to bud and blossom. That'll be the choice that I've made as far as who I want to be doing the work of the priesthood and, and all of these other things. That'll be my divine choice and my selection. So sure enough, Moses laid it up in there, then he came back sometime later, and the only one that was fruitful was Aaron's branch. So in the end, the Lord said, Take this branch, let it be a testimony forever for the succeeding generation that I chose Aaron to do what they're doing. And that's why the scripture says, for us, be fruitful and multiply. And that's why the scripture calls Jesus the righteous branch. That's why he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, you are to bear much fruit. See, all of this is symbolic of the ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And with that ark, even though it had these three particular witnesses in the ark, that ark on the top of it had gold, a plate on top of it, and then it had these cherubim. They looked like angels that were facing one another with their wings like this, and they're looking down into the ark of the covenant, staring at the law, the Ten Commandments. And those cherubim, of course, are 
on what is considered a mercy seat. Now, why is that mercy seat important? It's because God's judgment certainly can be harsh, but it's through the mercies of God that divine glory looks down upon his people. And the scriptures say it's, it's, it's a merciful thing that God does not impute our sins to us every day. And we should be grateful for that. His mercies are new every morning. His compassions are unfailing. And we have this in scripture. So these are things we should never forget when we think of the sacrifice of Christ. Everything that he did that's recorded in the Gospels somehow <clears throat> embolizes what we have in, or emblemize, I should say, what we have here in the Old Testament. You know, These things are important because if we have an idea of Jesus' ministry, then the reading of the Old Testament events make a whole lot more sense. Us. So if I see a uh, tent or a tabernacle with all of this, uh, some people get excited because they're thinking about how God did this for Israel and how God did this for the Jewish people. I get excited because I think about what God did through Christ and what he accomplished at Calvary. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 6 then says, these things were thus ordained. The priests always went first, always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So here was the ministry of the priest. It was a ministry of blood, the sacrifice of animals. I thank God we don't have to do that now. The, the only thing you're really required to do as a Christian in the form of sacrifice is to offer your body to God as a living sacrifice. And also the scripture says in Hebrews, offer to the Lord sacrifices of praise. Now remember, it, it's a sacrifice if if something has to die. So the animals had to die to be sacrificed so that Israel could live. And when it comes to praising God, your praise to God, it goes up, but you have to praise the Lord even when you don't feel like praising God. So you die to self-will. Your own personal desire is, I'd much rather sit in a lazy boy and just sulk and be angry but praise, a sacrifice of praise, is to say, Lord, I worship you, <clears throat> I honor you, I praise you through the pain, I praise you through the tears, I praise you through the victories, I praise you through the blessings, I praise you through the good times, I praise you through the bad times, I praise you on the mountaintop and in the valley. That's a sacrifice of praise. And the offering of your body to God as a sacrifice simply means that you've rendered to the Lord your heart, mind, soul, and strength in every aspect of your life. How can I give more of myself to God. It's not God giving more of himself to you. You know, you hear people say that sometimes. God, I just need more of you. It's not a problem of God running from you or trying to withhold himself from you. It's a matter of us giving more of ourselves to him. And as we do that, he pours in in the overflow. Now, the, the, the priest, according to verse 7 then, he goes into that second uh, tent once a year, but not without blood which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. So this man, here's another contrast. This priest has to offer sins for himself. Jesus didn't have to do that. His eternal sacrifice was not for his own sins, but it certainly was for ours. But once a year, the sins of Israel could be dealt with. Now, that, that's, not a, that's not a happy situation. To think that your sins can only be dealt with on one day of the year. That's the only day they can be covered. 
and and the rest of the time throughout the year you got sacrifices two a day six days a week 9 a.m 3 p.m and, and you're just hoping that that blood is enough just to keep the wrath and judgment of god away from you so that you can continue to live but on the day of atonement for that for that one day and for that one moment when the priest went to the Holy of Holies and, and had the blood with him and went in there and did everything that he had to do, everybody could feel good. Oh, I'm cleansed. <sighs> then 30 minutes later, you got 360-something more days of condemnation and feeling bad. Because you realize that the man offering up the sacrifices for you, he's as sinful as you are. He needs the blood more than you possibly, you see. And in certain situations, when you had people like Eli, who was running the tabernacle with his sons, they were more sinful than the average Israelite. Imagine that. Imagine having a, imagine having a pastor whose life was so outwardly perverse that you didn't even want to go to the tabernacle at all. And that's what happened many times in, in the scripture. The sacrifice Jesus made was made because he honestly wanted to see us redeemed. He wanted to see us saved. He wasn't too busy. Some people are too busy because they're distracted by, by other things. The one day of the year that they're supposed to make the atonement for sins, that priest had to ensure that he was where he was supposed to be and everything was set in order. Now, this, this, this is important. Because if, if Jesus' sacrifice for us is still good today, that means that his blood still works. Folks, you haven't done anything that God can't forgive you of. Nothing. And the devil, he'll whisper in your ear over and over again that what you have done has disqualified you from ever feeling good in the presence of God. And if you listen to what he's saying then you just, you just always feel so beat down and defeated. And that's where the devil wants us. But, but the Lord wants us on the side of the blood. And to see that there's never been a point in time in our lives as Christians where the blood of Jesus did not prevail on our behalf. Scripture says a righteous man falls seven times and then he gets right back up again. That means if you fall, you trip and fall in a mud puddle, whether somebody stuck their foot out or whether you slipped and fell on your own, it doesn't matter. Just get up, clean yourself up in the blood of Jesus Christ and go on with a good conscience and honestly believe that you're as clean as a newborn baby. Yeah, just do that. You'll feel, you'll feel a lot better about yourself when you go to sleep at night and when you wake up if you really believe that the blood prevails on your behalf. There are many nights I go to sleep and I tell you I wake up the next morning after, after some of the wild and crazy dreams I have. I don't feel like a preacher when I wake up, much less like a Christian sometimes. So when, when, I, when I wake up <clears throat> and, and whatever kind of night it was, then I realize, oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. See, the old man is dead. And then I just turn, I roll over, see that pretty gal next to me. I said, oh, my Lord, I know this isn't a dream world here. Praise God. Still a Christian in the Lord, even though I didn't feel like a Christian. You ever, you ever have moments where you don't feel like you're saved? Some of you have more than one a day. Huh? You say, yeah, have moments like that where you know. Yeah, we, that, that happens. But the Lord was not so busy with other things that he got distracted and he couldn't redeem us. I love this testimony that a missionary to China had, a man by the name of Hudson Taylor. He said he was traveling on a Chinese ship one time. He was going from Shanghai to Ningpo. And he said that 
Uh, he had been witnessing to a man named Peter who rejected the gospel, but this gentleman was under deep conviction. So he said in the course of events, Peter fell overboard, and he said uh, nobody made any effort uh, to try to save the man. And Mr. Taylor then said he sprang to the mast, he let the sail down, he jumped overboard in hopes of finding his friend but couldn't find him. He said he got back up there on the boat and he saw another fishing boat nearby and he was begging them to please drop their nets and try to drag the waters to find this man to see what's going, you know, try to rescue the man. And the people on the boat didn't know Mr. Taylor and they didn't know Peter, didn't care anything about him. And so they started negotiating with Mr. Taylor about how much money he would give them to help them survive for the man. Well, by the time they spent five to ten minutes going over all of this and finally dropped the net and they received their funds, they, they, they brought up the body, but he was dead. But see, they, they were so busy trying to negotiate and, and, and consumed and thinking about the money that the man that was overboard they didn't care about, they weren't interested in fishing for men. They didn't care anything about the man's soul. And when you think about Jesus, we're talking about somebody that lived his entire life holy every day on behalf of people like us whom he knew would never be holy every single day, did not get distracted, but yet he still reached out and saved us. That's, that's a wonderful, wonderful plan of salvation, folks. There's no other faith on the planet that provides something like this. So Scripture says in verse 8, the Holy Spirit through all of this was indicating that the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest or hadn't appeared while the first tabernacle was, was standing. So as long as the first tabernacle was erected and then you still had that temple in operation, people were blinded to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now you say, well, Herod's temple was still around when Jesus was crucified. True. Herod's temple was still in the process of being rebuilt. However, there was no Ark of Covenant in the Holy of Holies during the time that Jesus was there. That Ark of the Covenant somehow disappeared hundreds of years ago. And even some of the, uh, I'm trying to think, the, the law and the, the books and the scrolls of Scripture, you'll remember sometimes those things were lost and they were neglected because during Josiah's time, one of the priests found the books of the Bible in one of the old attics, and it had been covered up with everything, and finally they brought it to Josiah, and they read it to him, and he fell down and started crying and, and, and went into weeping and praying and fasting because a book that had been lost for a long time has now been brought to his attention. Children of Israel had a terrible time with that. They'd serve God for a minute and then forget about the things of God. So don't be like that. Don't, don't walk with God for a certain season and then cast God aside. Uh, don't enjoy your redemption for a few months and then take it for granted. Enjoy the blessings that the Lord has provided for you through his son. So verse, verse 9 then says, those things were a figure for the time then present, in which gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So every day the priests were cutting up animals, skinning them, washing the innards, cutting off the hooves, trying to fit the pieces of meat on the altar, sprinkling the blood in different places, attempting to sanctify themselves. But according to verse 9 here, their conscience still was troubled by their own individual sin. Think about that. Now, this is why Christ 
sacrifice is so powerful. In my life, I have had sin in my life. See, Scripture says in 1 John, if anybody say that they have not sinned, they're a liar. So that's past tense. I have had sin in my life. But if I say I have no sin, present tense, 1 John still says I'm a liar. Because inside of this body, even though I've become a Christian, once I left the old life and became a Christian, I still have the old nature, even though God has given me a new nature. So the scripture says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become brand new. But inside of me is still those old desires, those old inclinations. And the adversary works to create temptations in my life that will cause those old desires and old inclinations to come back to life. And that's the same thing with you. We call that the old nature. And the scripture says that old nature is crucified. You reckon that man dead by faith. So when you become a Christian, you learn quickly that things that you formerly did, you no longer can do, some of them. But now you have to wrestle with this thing called temptation because you didn't have to battle it before you became a Christian. You just did what you wanted. And you probably didn't have any conviction about it, probably didn't feel bad. But now you become a Christian and you're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to resist the temptation. And when you yield, you immediately feel bad because you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. And you feel worse because the devil is condemning you. So you're just getting hit. So that's why you got to quickly get back to the blood and say, oh, God, Father, forgive me. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Godly sorrow will produce repentance. And then, I mean, your conscience will be clean once you know that God has helped you. But you say, well, Pastor Darrell, what, what if I find myself uh, having to do that day in and day out? Well, folks, that's what the blood is for. I mean, the only people on this planet that have ever lived holy are Adam, Eve, and Jesus, and, and the first two didn't fare too well in the garden anyway, see? So, so the idea of you feeling like, oh my, I just, I, I'm, I, I just feel like I should just be perfect all the time. You know, if you feel, if you think you ought to, that's, that's a wonderful thing. That's the objective. That should be your goal. I'd rather aim way up here and hit half of it than aim for zero and get it all, Okay? Yeah. So, so have something in your life there. This is what his death certainly does signify. Now, there was a, a very, very popular preacher years ago named A.W. Tozer. I don't know how many books this man has written, but he was in Omaha, Nebraska one time, and he said he heard a man preach a message. He said he cannot remember anything about who the preacher was, and he said he really doesn't remember the content of the message. He just knew it was instructive to him as far as his sins were. And he said he was under conviction while the man was teaching. So he goes back to his hotel room. He says he got down on his knees and he was praying. And he said he started thinking about how wonderful and how great God is. And he started thinking about his own life as a sinner. And he said, uh, Tozer, you're a sinner. And he said, if, 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 if every corpuscle in your body was a sin... And if every nerve in your body was a sin and every hair on your head was a sin and you had sin like a mountain or an ocean and there was a, there would still be a limit to it all. 
He said, if a surveyor came and had to count all of the sins in your life, Tozer, it didn't matter how long it took him, whether it was three months, three years, or 30 years, he said there would still be a point in time where he would come to the outside of it, the finish of it, the conclusion of it. But he said, the beautiful thing about the blood of Jesus Christ is his blood is infinite. It knows no bounds. It is limitless. And it can help anybody no matter how many sins there are that a person might be involved with. So, folks, when you think about Christ's sacrifice, that's an important thing to remember. When the scripture says, where sin hath abounded, grace has much more abounded. That's a very true principle in the scripture. And it's that that the Lord, that, that idea that the Lord wants us all to stand on rather than allowing the devil to just beat us up every single day, feeling like we're absolutely worthless. Yeah. I've, I've heard <clears throat> Tiff and I were in a meeting one time, man preached on missions. I mean, by the time he was done, he made it seem like none of us had ever given a quarter to support missions, to do missions. I mean, I, I felt so bad afterwards. If I could have took my shoes off, I would have put Tiffany in the offering basket if, if they would have took her. I mean, I, we all felt bad. It was terrible. Everybody, I, it couldn't have been conviction. It had to be condemnation. But we all felt terrible when it was, when it was over. And I thought to myself, I said, that, that, that cannot be the way to preach missions to people. I'm sure it raised a whole lot of cash, but that, that cannot be the way to do it. I think that people who give should be motivated to give or do missions because God loves a cheerful giver. See, that's what scripture is, cheerful, happy to give. Not somebody walking down there crying because they got to give up their last dollar and what am I going to do and that, that kind of a thing. Okay, let's go back to the text then. So then verse 10 he speaks of all of these ordinances, which were meats and drinks and different kinds of washings. We can even say baptisms had, had a, a lot of different ways to cleanse themselves. You say, how, how did they have to cleanse themselves? Well, in the outer court, there was also a bowl with water in it. And the priests had to wash their hands and their face and their feet and all of that kind of a thing. That's one thing. But then also if someone was designated as unclean for a variety of reasons under the Old Covenant, sometimes they would have to bathe themselves and wash uh, themselves and have water poured upon them for different things. And the scripture says all of these were imposed upon them until the time of Reformation. What was the time of Reformation? The time when Christ came. The time when Jesus came and said there's going to be a change in all of these things. If you don't know that that's a, a good thing, look at what verse 11 says. Christ becoming a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal Redemption for us, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ do it? Now, we've got people in Nebraska that raise goats. And I, I mean, goats, oh, my Lord, they aren't exactly the cleanest creatures on the planet, folks. I've, I've seen goats chew on aluminum cans, soda cans, and all kinds of things. Who would have ever suspected that a goat 
that, that a goat's blood could handle somebody's sins. But the way God designed this, they had specific animals that had to be sacrificed, but all of that was designed to be temporary. It was never to be permanent because Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. That was the plan of God. And here is why we love our Savior so much, because he's a, a priest of a much better tabernacle. Now, 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 says our body is the temple of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or looked at your body as the temple of God, but we oftentimes say we're going to church, but the truth of the matter is we are the church. People, we're the church. It's not a building. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Even though we dedicate buildings to God and, and we, you know, people go through all kinds of things and anoint stuff and lay hands on stuff and in some groups they throw water on stuff and everything else trying to make something a holy place for God. The bottom line is he, he doesn't live in wood. He lives in us. We're the temple, unmade with hands. Where two or three gather, Jesus is in the midst of. So having a much better tabernacle, still a skin tent though, still a skin tent, but having a much better tabernacle now, he dwells in us in holiness and perfection. And if there is any perfection in you at all, it's only because of Jesus. There's no perfection in me at all on my own. The only thing perfect in me is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why it takes his blood in order to redeem me. And the blood of bulls and goats could have never made me feel better in my conscience because it didn't help the children of Israel. And if people today in this world are still sacrificing and believing that the blood of animals will get them greater standing in the presence of God, I guarantee you they still go to sleep at night worried and fretting about whether or not this stuff is really true. But this is faith to believe that the blood that was shed on a cross 2000 years ago by a man that was raised from the dead on the third day, that his blood is able to do for you today what it did for people 2000 years ago. It takes faith to believe that. And if you can rest in that, you go to sleep at night feeling good. This is how we get a clear, a clear conscience. The scripture says it's possible for a person's conscience to be seared with a hot iron. What, what, what does that mean? That's an old way of describing how somebody would take cattle and brand it. Once you brand it, folks, you, you can't change that. You're just not going to get that marking off of that animal unless you're just going to just start cutting off, cutting off the skin altogether because it, it's seared in there. And the conscience of a human is shaped by the information and by the people and by the environment. And if that conscience is not radically reoriented according to the word of God and the mind is renewed in the spirit by the principles of the scripture, a person's mind can become so grossly perverted where they don't know right from wrong and they'll call evil good and good evil. That's the scripture. That's, that, that's very true. I use this illustration all the time when I ever, whenever this conscience thing comes up. Uh, Richard Pryor was a funny man for a lot of people, and 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 he was a comedian that that brought uh, that brought a, a lot of joy to people that like that kind of comedy. And <clears throat> this was a man who uh, was raised by his grandma, who was a madam, and, and so he was he was raised in a brothel. That's all he knew. He didn't know any other kind of lifestyle. He just knew women coming and going and servicing men. So for him, the idea of somebody being a preacher 
or somebody being religious, automatically they're going to be a target because he can't even identify with that kind of lifestyle at all. The idea that you would tell somebody that, that, that morals should bind their habits and constrain some of the things that they do. He didn't, he didn't understand any of that because where he was at, there's no right from wrong. If you get as much money out of the John, you can. That's how he was raised. Well, if you ever heard him in interviews after he had all of those problems with drugs, you, you listen to him and you can tell, even though he's not using these specific words, you can see you're dealing with a man's struggle with his conscience. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with a man's struggle with guilt and shame. He just didn't know how to get out of it. I don't know if people witnessed to him or, or he, he just avoided it or whatever, but, but I do know this, that when a person really, really learns the, the intricate details of salvation and, and the principles of the book of Hebrews and what Jesus did on the cross as the true high priest and his sacrifice for us at Calvary, whatever you're passing through, you'll know that at the end of each day, you can go to God and say, Father, I want to thank you now that despite all my failures, I, I can repent and you forgive me and I can rest safely in your blood. I shouldn't have said what I said earlier. God, forgive me. I shouldn't have did what I did earlier. Lord, forgive me. And you can go to sleep and everything's well. And you can get up the next morning and everything still be well. But when people don't have this kind of knowledge, oh, it makes for a terrible existence. Yeah. Some of these documentaries that I see of these actors and actresses and sports figures, I know their lives could have been changed if only somebody had told them about the blood of Jesus. Mm -hmm. They just didn't know how to, they, they wrestled with, uh, they wrestled with, they, they call them inner demons. It's the old nature. It's the old nature. He had all these inner demons. She didn't know how to control her inner demons. The old nature, yielding to temptation. That's, that's not to say the devil isn't there to try to get involved and possess people and all of that. But I'm saying a lot of stuff that goes on is really the flesh. And so the battle between uh, what's going on with, with us Christians is usually the world, the flesh, and the devil. No sense in putting the blame a lot of other places, but the world, the flesh, and the devil are the three things we have to deal with. Christ's sacrifice made it possible for us to be able to obtain victory. Scripture says, by faith, we overcome the world. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. Well, let's... Oh, my goodness. It's all the further I've gotten. Wow. Well, we can... We can say something here about... About verse 15, oh my goodness. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And then for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the tester, for a testament is a force after. Men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the tester delivers, so we'll stop right there. Okay, so here we learn quickly, we call this a New Testament because the Testament requires us to believe that we're going to be dealing with someone's death and we're going to be dealing with an inheritance, which means there's going to be an heir. So out here and other places around the world, folks will tell you, Try to have some kind of a will see, so that people will know where everything goes. 
Whether you got to write it down on a piece of paper and grandma's got to do it the best way she can. She says, I want my favorite hairbrush to go to my favorite granddaughter. However it's got to be, be done, people understand. But, but typically, these things don't go into effect until after someone has died. Now, there are exceptions, like the story of the prodigal son. He got his inheritance while daddy was alive. And I've seen people who, who've done that, and I've seen... Uh, some people turn out, do good with the inheritance while mom and dad are still alive. And I've seen other people just go through it real fast, just destroy it and uh, destroy themselves in the process. But, but Jesus, he put into effect a New Testament that allowed us to become joint heirs with him. That's Romans 8, joint heirs. So that means one cannot receive the inheritance without the other. He shares with us what he has obtained through his death and his resurrection. And the force of the testament is this. He died, his death was witnessed. It was verified. But also, he was raised again for our justification, as the scripture is very plain to tell us. So as a, as a Christian, I'm considering all that I have received as a believer. And the Bible says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then it says, let's not forget the benefits. So we do have benefits. Well, what, what are a handful of the benefits? Quickly go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, Old Testament. Psalm 103. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these uh, with, with detail, but just, just want to highlight them. Just want you to see what, what's written here. Because we've been working on this issue of the blood and forgiveness. So notice Psalm 103. Verse number two, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, we all like benefits. And believe me when I tell you, this is a nation right now that loves benefits. And the people receiving benefits is always, they're always on the increase in this nation. Because a lot of people like to receive them. Well, we like to receive spiritual benefits. Look at verse three. He forgives our iniquities. Praise the Lord. He heals our diseases, praise the Lord. He redeems our lives from destruction, praise the Lord for that. He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies our mouth with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagle. So that's the effect of it. The good things produce a renewal. Remember, the scripture says the blessing of the Lord maketh rich and addeth no sorrow. God's not giving you anything that's turning your hair gray. And he's not giving you anything that, that, that has you so stressed out that you're, you're falling apart. God, is, God wants to give you the kinds of blessings that make you feel like, oh, my, I feel like I'm getting stronger, like I'm getting younger. You know, that, that's what the kind of blessing he wants to add to your life. And then, of course, uh, it says there, the Lord executed righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. And that's just a few of the benefits. And all of that's connected with the death of Christ and his resurrection. If, if I walked you through Isaiah 53, I may not take me 15 weeks to go through everything that's in the fine print of redemption according to his death on the cross in Isaiah 53. Primarily, he died to save people from sin, primarily. That's why he came. He came to save people, all the, the green people 
and, and, and folks that are interested in saving the earth and they want to save the owl and all that, that's, that's noble and, and they want to make sure that their, their favorite uh, cause is somehow we got we to gotta look out for the white-billed woodpecker or something like that. I don't know if that's, that's what people enjoy. That's fine. But, but when, it, when it comes to redemption, Jesus' primary mission was to save people. Now, he, he loves this earth. The Bible says God made it. But the scripture is very plain. As long as there is God, there's going to be seed time and harvest. There's going to be spring and fall, rain. There's going to be summer and winter, it says in Genesis. That tells me I don't have to worry about the earth getting too hot. I don't have to worry about the earth getting too cold. I'm not going to worry about whether or not it, it seems like the water level is going up or the water level is coming down because I know this, the same God that made the heavens and the earth is the same one that, according to the prophets, says that the waters from the ocean come up on the shores so far and the Lord set the boundaries and then they turn around and they go right back out. See, God's still in control of all of this. And if we know that, it's to help us appreciate what he's done for us in redemption. I'm not a person that, uh, I'm, I'm not like some vegetarians. They don't want anybody to see any animal uh, go through any kind of pain or, or harm or anything like that. I like steak, you know, so that's, that's not going to be a problem for me. I like pork, and that, that never has been a problem for me. Genesis, God put all of that here for us, but Jesus didn't die on the cross to redeem your bucket calves, you see. He died on the cross redeem us and if, if if we keep everything the way it's supposed to be seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness all these other things will be added to us but when we put third things first and second things first then the most important thing is relegated to the back and then we spend more time talking about issues that are not even as important as why God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life I don't like to see them commercials that you don't like to see with the, the dogs that's been abused and all that. I hate seeing that stuff. Poor little cat sitting there in the cage. And just don't anybody love me out there in camera world? Yeah, I don't like to see that either. But that, 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 that cat, will have, he'll have a different kind of existence when he closes his eyes. But when we die, we think about redemption with him. And folks, when you go to sleep tonight... <clears throat> Just praise the Lord that you don't have to stand before the Lord in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We appreciate you. There's never been a time where we needed to understand the redemption that your son provided for us like in this time right now when there's so much guilt and condemnation and shame and sadness and excessive sorrow in a world because of so many tragedies and calamities, God. Help us, Lord, to, to articulate the, the pathway of redemption so that boys and girls and men and women can see they can be delivered and they can walk up right before you. Thank you that you're cleansing our conscience. Thank you, Lord, that we can find forgiveness now as we're praying. And thank you for making us every bit as white as the the snow that comes down in the wintertime. These things we pray for in Jesus' name.
Amen, 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 amen.